Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to have Gary Nesner, who is the former chief of the FBI crisis negotiation team. Gary, thank you for coming on today. Could you give the audience a quick introduction to who you are and your journey to through the FBI? I joined the FBI at a young age, uh, sort of a lifelong ambition of mine, starting when I was uh, very young. And... Um, Shortly after becoming an FBI agent, uh, when my dream was ultimately uh, fulfilled, um, a new area in law enforcement was emerging. It was called hostage negotiations. And hearing about it uh, appealed to me and my personality, and I thought it was a very intriguing area, and I wanted to become involved in it. Some years after that, I was able to uh, secure a slot in the training school and began to function in that capacity in the field. and. Assisting police departments handle situations and teaching negotiation skills and eventually became a full-time negotiator at the FBI Academy, one of only three at the time. And we sort of supported 350 or so negotiators in the field. And then after the infamous Waco incident, 93, I was made chief of uh, the crisis negotiation unit, which was an expanded negotiation entity created in order to address the problems that we did experienced at Waco. So, I mean, that must have been a huge catalyst because obviously a lot of responsibility was put at the feet of the FBI. How did that affect thinking and the culture of the organization? Well, pretty significantly. In some ways, it made a lot of structural changes, but in philosophical ways, relatively few, because as hard as this may be to believe, I've told people since that event in 93, that Waco was more a departure from what the FBI had done than it was a stimulus for us to rethink what we did and invent new policies and procedures. The after action reports demonstrated that the negotiation team certainly understood the problem, had a great strategy, was achieving success. And that was unwittingly undercut by some bad FBI management decisions and then coupled with a very erratic and difficult individual in person of David Koresh, it spelled disaster. So what we really learned out of Waco was to do it the way we had always done before and to not engage in this departure from the tried and true. Interesting. So tell me this, in terms of the qualities that make a good FBI negotiator, what do you look for in terms of habits, attitudes, beliefs, values? There's a wide range of people who can become effective negotiators. I think the number one attribute is good self-control and uh, to be a person that control their emotions, is a good listener, and genuinely and sincerely wants to help people get out of a predicament that they're in. That sincere belief comes through in the way you communicate. Yeah, it's certainly something that can be fake, but those typically are not our successful negotiators. They're most successful negotiators are really those who are able to convey what in truth they feel inside. And that is, hey, man, I want to help you get out of this situation. This is, uh, there's no reason for anybody else to get hurt. Let's work cooperatively to make sure you're safe and you can get this resolved. That comes through in not just what you say, but more importantly, how you say it and how you present yourself to the perpetrator, for lack of a better term. So, you know, some really effective interpersonal communication skills. And I will say there are 
you know, a certain number of people who are naturally good at this and just try to fine tune those skills. There's others who can certainly benefit from a lot of training and practice exercises. And then there's a group of people who are simply probably never going to be effective at this because of their unique personalities. And um, so we kind of look for a, a broad array of people. It's funny, Marcus, back in the uh, early 80s, we did a study on the best FBI negotiators and what were the commonalities. And we were going to use that information as a recruitment tool within the organization. And I was one of the ones that was interviewed for the program. And interestingly enough, they didn't really come up with but one strong uh, commonality. And, and you'll be surprised to hear this. It was rule breaking, mm-hmm. which you know translates into being flexible, creative, not constrained by regulation or a, a past activity or approach to doing things. So sort of being an open-minded uh, individual. And, you know, the more I thought about that, it didn't make sense at first. And then I said, well, yeah, this is a pretty good indicator of people who are focused on getting the job done and are less focused on how it looks to others or have they followed all the procedures and policies. That's interesting because certainly in a sales context, the top performers tend to be more maverick. They tend to be rule breakers. They think around the problem. They are willing to go up against the entrenched thinking or the received wisdom. And it's really interesting because you see a lot of people who are very structured and tend to be very conformist. And they get so far, but they never, in my experience, they never really reach the heights of the super performance. I was going to give you an example. I'm sorry if I interrupted there. During early on the Waco situation, we had some conversations with David Koresh, and he wanted to have a national broadcast. And of course, we were concerned in the FBI that he would use this in sort of a a Jim Jones kind of fashion to state his message and then kill himself and all his followers. So we were very concerned about that. But we said we would consider playing a recorded message would give us a chance to listen to it first to make sure it was not problematic in any way. When I presented this to the on-scene commander and the tactical <laughs> commander, their first question was, we've never done that before. What do we get out of it? Right. And I said, well, the real important question is, what do we lose? I said, we may not get anything out of it. He may not follow through on his promise to surrender if we play it, but what have we lost? All we've we're doing is giving a chance to uh, set up a scenario where we've done something for him now and the rule of reciprocity would suggest that he owes us something back and we'll follow through on his word. Now, as it turns out, he did re- renege on that and he didn't come out. But I still stand by the decision for us to play that tape nationally because it fulfilled a lot of positive things for us in terms of its potential. So again, it's looking at a problem that's never happened before and saying, well, why not? In the Freeman siege three years later, one of the people we were negotiating with wanted to be flown out of the siege, taken to a prison to talk to his boss, who we had arrested earlier, to get some guidance. Well, that's never happened in the world before, but we did it. We put him on a plane. We flew him to the prison. We let him talk to his boss, and he ended up leading everyone out to surrender. So, again, a good example of thinking outside the box and, and not overly limiting your yourself by your own inflexibility. 
what I always find is that ego tends to get in the way of clear thinking. And often that's tied into emotional attachment, either to being perceived in a particular way or to an outcome or to having things done in a way that you feel is right. And uh, so often people suffer from this misconception that everybody sees the world through the same lens that they do. And that certainly in business and in sales is very, very harmful. Do you find the same thing in negotiation? Yeah, and, and a lot of people look in the world, you know, as a zero sum. If, you know, if, if, if you're gaining something out of this, it must be bad for me, or I have to be seen to win, or if it's a loss for me. And a lot of time, I'll give you another example. Many, many years ago, there was a, a fellow who had climbed up a, a very tall radio tower and was contemplating suicide. And the police were having a great deal of difficulty negotiating with him. And they called me up for some advice. And I asked him, does he want anything? And they said, yeah, he, he wants some cigarettes. And I said, well, did you give him the cigarettes? And they said, no, 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 we never, you know, negotiation tradecraft says you never give something unless you get something in return. And I said, well, that's true in a bargaining situation, but those are only about 10% of the situations. This is a crisis situation. I said, what do you lose by doing this? Again, that same thing. What's the downside? The worst of the outcome is we give him some cigarettes that demonstrate that we're not there to make his day worse and that we're reasonable, accommodating people that care for his welfare. And um, that was a good start of opening a communication that led to the guy to eventually come down and surrender. But again, it's that constricted thinking that often comes into play that, well, what do we gain? And I said, well, what, what do you expect him to give you? Is he going to lower a leg down or hand you uh, one of his arms? I mean, he's, he's up on the tower. He just wants a couple cigarettes. Can't we demonstrate some good faith? I'm really curious. In my experience in sales, negotiation generally means giving stuff away, getting nothing back in return and discounting. Historically, I've tended to view it with a relatively pejorative perspective. As I've grown older and wiser, I've realized that the world isn't black and white. It's many shades of gray. And good negotiation is a genuinely powerful skill set. Do you mind defining for me what you consider to be the definition of negotiation? It's pretty simple. It's communications. <laughs> it's opening up a dialogue for a variety of different purposes, but for coming to a, an agreement, an understanding, avoiding conflict. But it's basically a dialogue, and um, it's talking with someone. And I think that's why I always tell people, I when negotiators show up at a crisis site and we open up a conversation with the perpetrator who's inside, it's always a victory. It's always a victory. We're always succeeding because that's what we want. If we're not in communication, there can be a whole range of miscommunications, misunderstandings, false perceptions about what we're doing and why. It even goes to the extent that I advise that when we're dealing with a, a non-communicative subject, so someone who really refuses to talk to the police, that instead of just droning endlessly, that pick up the phone, talk to us, pick up the phone, talk to us, that we began through a what we call a one-way lot dialogue to begin to convey to him the fears and misunderstandings that you assume are present by the fact by the circumstances. So he said, I know you must be confused as to why we're here. You may be thinking that we mean you harm. Let me assure you. This is why we're here, and this is what we're trying to accomplish, and this is who we are. Even though the person is not talking, doesn't mean they're not listening. So 
those are the kinds of communications that we, you know, and you can't be successful 100% of the time, but typically this will lead to someone eventually responding to you. And that's the proverbial salesman's foot in the door to open up the conversation, which is what we want. Again, it's, it's not a guarantee to success. But if you come across as authoritative and demanding and uh, controlling, as so often is the case in law enforcement, it can actually be quite counterproductive. So let's move on a little bit in that case, because that was very helpful. Let's move on to the mechanics, if you like. If a crisis occurs, presumably there's some form of playbook that you guys would be referring to or working from. And there's a process where, as you're making your way to the scene, you're planning, you've got your team together, you're assigning roles and responsibilities. Talk me through what that's like. Well, there's a lot of initial assessment that takes place, even when you're responding to an incident. A big clue is, where is it happening? I mean, if it's a, if it's a bank, you may end up being wrong, but you can assume it's probably a robbery. If it's an industrial warehouse, it's probably a workplace violence incident. If it's a home or an apartment, it's probably a domestic squabble. So based on the venue itself, you can begin to make some assumptions as to what is most likely going on there. Now, as information comes in and your knowledge of what's happening increases, and it always does, you may modify and alter that. But you can go into the situation. Uh, for example, I got a call many years ago on the 4th of July, and a fellow had, at gunpoint, taken over a U.S. aircraft carrier that was a, a museum in Charleston Harbor. And he had a high-powered rifle, and he was shooting this rifle off. He didn't hit anybody, but it was on the 4th of July, our Independence Day. So just while getting that initial call, I was able to make some pretty telling assumptions that I don't claim as being particularly insightful. but that here you have a, a very high-profile venue, very symbolic venue. It's on a very symbolic and important day. We're probably going to be dealing with a disgruntled veteran who is, he's got issues or concerns that haven't been adequately addressed by the government, the Veterans Administration that, that handles those things over here in the States. And that's exactly what it turned out to be. So these are some preliminary assessments you can make. Another thing is, the, you know, the, the best indicator is we want to get communication with this as soon as possible. There's a lot of constricted thinking in the states where, hey, we don't want to talk to this person until the SWAT team is set up. And I always ask, well, why? And they said, well, what if he surrenders? And I said, well, you know, if the guy really wants to surrender, I think the regular policeman on the scene can handle that okay. If the guy will do what you say. We don't need to have a specialized SWAT team there necessarily. We don't want to say to somebody, I hear you want to surrender, but we're not ready for you. I mean, we would never want to say that. But communicate early, begin to alleviate their fears as to about what our intentions are, why we're there, and our willingness to help keep the situation calm. So these are a lot of things you begin to think about right away. And we function, certainly in the FBI, as a negotiation team. So while someone's communicating, we're gathering information. We're talking to friends, relatives, associates, uh, witnesses to what happened. And we're trying to put together a profile of cause and effect here. You know, what, what prompted this person to do it? What's his, and hit them. perhaps the most important one is if there is a hostage, per se, what's the relationship? If, is it an employer? Is it a person that he has a history with that is 
acrimonious, such as an employer? Is it a, a lover, jilted lover, a wife that's threatened to leave, whatever it might be? All of these are indicators to us as to the motivation and thinking of the person we're dealing with. Given the intense emotional kind of the environment that you guys operate in, it must be very high stress. How does a negotiator maintain that level of calm and dispassionate detachment and then be able to walk away from what is potentially a horrific outcome if you know, the, the negotiation isn't successful? There's two things. And I used to say this when I trained negotiators. I said, you know, you're not God. You didn't create this situation. You're not responsible for what's happened up to this point. You can't bring back somebody that's been killed. You can't prevent an injury that's already occurred. You've got to put your mindset towards moving forward. And what can I do moving from this point ahead to make sure there's no further injury or loss of life and get this person to cooperate? Knowing at the end of the day, no matter how good we are at what we do, no matter even if we make some mistakes, perhaps, the ultimate decision about what happens inside is made by the perpetrator. So it's sort of the serenity prayer, you know, understand what you can do and what you can't do and be aware of the differences and understand the differences. That's important. But it goes back to an, also another part of your question there and goes back to the earlier question about the stress. And it's um, it's the old Roger Kipling quote, you know, if you can keep your head about you when all else are losing theirs, that's a really good attribute. And we've all, I think most of us in life have been in tense situations, not necessarily life and death, where all of a sudden you see somebody you know really shine, really become a calm, stable person that really focuses in on what do we need to do now. And there's other people that get into a significant panic mode and become dysfunctional in many ways because they're so caught up in the reaction to the emotionality of it that they can't, they can't function properly. I equate a good negotiator to a trauma surgeon. You know, if you're a trauma surgeon in the hospital and there's been this horrific accident and victims are coming in and some of them are children and they've lost limbs and it's just terrible, the doctor feels the emotion but puts it aside and says, who do I have to triage now? Where do my resources and my efforts need to be focused to save as many lives as I can now? The next day when he goes home to his family and breaks down crying, there's plenty of time for that. But right now, being able to put that emotion aside is really the key. Help me understand this then. I mean, um, how important is the planning, the drill, the practice to ensure that when a negotiator is facing one of these difficult scenarios, that having lived it before, they've drilled themselves that they go into a default setting, if you like, of knowing what to do. And is there a process that they go through or is that on an individual basis? You know, negotiation training typically covers policies, procedures, techniques, communication skills, abnormal psychology, but probably case studies. Probably the most important thing is role-playing. So to provide adequate training for a negotiator, you run them through a lot of scenarios. And frankly, those can often tend to be much harsh, much more harsh than reality. I, I remember back in 1982, I was a guest attendee and lecturer at the Hendon course for the Scotland Yards negotiators. And it's a great course and great program. And 
I mean, they're really, really tough. At the time, they were tougher on their students than we were back in the States. But I think running students through some real challenging drills that introduce them to different types of personalities, whether it's a mental health deficiency or anger, and being comfortable that I can respond to this person effectively without tripping over my tongue or making it worse. And some of it's just a confidence, too. What I tell negotiators, you will fail only if you are overly worried about what you will do. You will, in any negotiations, make mistakes. Uh, you will say things that later on, if you recorded and listen to the negotiations, you'll say, I could have said that better. But at the end of the day, nothing you say is going to make that person commit homicide. And overall, the mistakes fade away because if 99% of what you do is supportive and genuine and sincere, that's going to create the outcome that you want, the success that you're, you're seeking. We certainly find the same thing. The role plays are invariably tougher in our experience when they're playing the game of make the, uh, the trainer fail and you have them play the prospect then they roll in the 12 worst prospects they've ever met into one vicious bully. But what's really fascinating is that regular role play, I feel, is so important and managers don't do anywhere near enough in a commercial setting. Role play needs to be a regular activity and a regular part of training and coaching. And teams need to role play with one another. Yeah, and in the military does it. They call red cells and so forth. I mean, Let's say if you have a team that's going to sit down and discuss a major acquisition with another corporate entity, and you know, if you think you understand the different positions they would take and the different points they might bring up, run it like a moot court. You know, sit down and have practice and have certain individuals portray the positions and make the statements that you feel the client might that you're dealing with so that you're prepared for it and you have a sense of what you might say. And obviously a lot of that's going to be new to your role players. Oh, I didn't think about that. But now that the guy I'm practicing with has brought that up, I'm ready for that one if it comes my way. Okay. So let's take this to a slightly different level as well. But what I'm conscious of is very often when you're selling, when you're negotiating, you may be dealing with an individual, but there's a cast of characters behind them in the sales environment. You may be dealing with a sub-decision maker, or you may be dealing with an influencer, a recommender, a specifier, and you're not necessarily dealing with the entire committee. You may not be really dealing with where the power is. And I'm curious what you teach your guys to be able to flush out who's really involved in making the decision and how to identify that in a non-threatening way. I mean, that could be a real challenge, and there's a lot of structural variables here, but I'll give you one example. Um, we like to promote a good negotiator for the other side. There's been some prison riots I was involved in where there's one in Lucasville, Ohio in 93, where there were three separate factions holding hostages. And during the early negotiations, various inmates with various grievances would get on the phone and yell and scream and forward various demands. And we knew that was unworkable. So we would try to find amongst the people that we were hearing from, who was the most reasonable, who, who sounded the most like someone we might be able to work with. And we began to make minor concessions to those people to promote them in the eyes of their followers as someone who was able to get things done. 
And that way we, we sort of created the adversary that we wanted to deal with. We empowered them. If a real agitated guy asked for things, we never did anything for them. But if somebody was on the reasonable end of the spectrum, we would say, you know, that sounds reasonable. I think we can do that. You can tell your Please share with your other inmates there that um, you've brought up a good point and we can go along with that. So, you know, that's one way you can influence that. If, if you get up in a business negotiation, if they have a guy shows up and he, he's holding all his cards to the vest and you know he's not a decision maker, then you're probably not going to be very successful in your negotiations. And those you have to be a little more quiet and say, well, what is it the people you represent want? What's their view on this? And make him produce more so you can get a better sense of, you know, this person's really not pulling the trigger on this at all. In our world, we find that the people who play the positive buyer often are the worst type of prospect because what they want to do is bleed all your information. And so they're very positive, they're enthusiastic, but they actually often hold no power. And I'm curious in terms of the negotiation how you identify where the real power lies. That's a tough one. And it's it's a little more business than it is my experience. But it's certainly not uncommon for us to feel we have a deal with somebody and then we realize that we've been dealing with the wrong person all along. You just have to work real hard at finding out who is the person in charge. And you can ask some questions and direct your negotiations that way and try to sit down with that person if you can. I understand there's some reluctance from some on your team, and um, maybe we'd be best if we sat down directly with them and we can help iron out those differences. You sound reasonable and avoid arguing and put pressure on them to disclose more of what they seem to be hiding in terms of their process. We often come across gatekeepers who have the power to say no, but they don't have the power to say yes. And one of the things that's really important is to make sure that they don't feel diminished. A lovely line that works beautifully. So, Gary, besides you and I, who else needs to be involved in making this decision? And you offer them the battle on the power. Because, again, they're human beings. They have egos. They're fragile. And they're creatures of emotion. So you need to keep them intact. I'm really interested in taking this conversation a little bit deeper in terms of the third-party conversations. How do you use the person that you're negotiating with as an effective conduit and to make sure that they see you as an ally rather than an adversary, and you don't inadvertently become their accomplice. You're talking about the intermediary now or the actual... Uh... Yeah, an intermediary, whether it be someone in... It might be one of the bank robbers, but it, it could just as easily be a third party who is acting as an intermediary. I know when we originally talked about this, you said that very often politicians play the role of intermediary largely for self-serving reasons. How do you yeah. make sure that that message doesn't get diluted and you keep their ego out of it. It's very tough. And in a sense, in the law enforcement context, when we use the term intermediary, it's probably an inaccurate definition because in our world, the intermediary is our agent, our uh, controlled individual. He appears neutral and is acceptable to our adversary But in reality, the person is carrying out our agenda. A truly neutral, fair and balanced in-between person is is almost never used in a law enforcement context because it's really not 
we're not allowing somebody to freelance and commit us to a decision that we can't make. But, you know, in the Montana siege, we used, I mean, over 30 intermediaries and there were a handful of them that we had to jettison because they had their own agenda. And we were able to find out about that. We said, well, you're really not performing in the way that you indicated you would. And um, so you're out, you know, basically. When we use an intermediary in, in the law enforcement context, we're really looking for a person that's respected by the other side and can sort of be a guarantor to the deal more than we look at that person as being a true negotiator formulating the deal, if you can get the nuanced difference there. I do. I mean, it's, it strikes me that what that requires is a lot of effective coaching. Uh, Absolutely. It's a very extensive brief before they carry out this function and a very extensive debrief afterward and preparation for the next meeting. And, you know, you can ferret out pretty quickly those people that are are effective intermediaries on your behalf and those who are simply not capable of uh, functioning in the way you, you, you envision them doing so. In a sales and in a management context, I think one of the most important skills that those people can have especially if you're selling through a third party, is coaching. What sort of training did you provide your own negotiators in order to become great coaches? Well, our negotiation, the the FBI's National Crisis Negotiation course is a two-week course, same one as the Scotland Yard has a two-week course, the mother countries do. Ours is, um, it's the accumulation of a lot of knowledge and experience, the do's and don'ts, and we prepare our people pretty well. The coach in our context is a person that sits next to the actual negotiator because most of ours are telephonic. And that coach has a very, very important supportive role and is generally the only one that can pass a note or uh, share an idea and a concept with the primary negotiator. They're also in a position to take over if we have to negotiate. But our whole aim is to have a team of, say, four or five negotiators using their collective experience and assessment and knowledge up against one perpetrator who's under a lot of stress and operating on their own. It's not a fair fight in many respects, and we don't want it to be. The public tends to think of a negotiator just sort of operating independently and coming up with everything, and they don't appreciate how well scripted it is. I mean, after every phone call we have with a perpetrator, there is an extensive debrief. What did we all just hear? What does it mean? What do you think? Are we on the right approach? I mean, right track? What different approach? What shift should we make? Okay, now we've assessed the last call. Before another call comes in, now what's our strategy for what we anticipate coming in on the next call? What do we think the perpetrator's position will be? What will they be asking about? What will our responses be? What are the two or three key points that we want to get into this next call? And then let's practice it through role-playing before it happens. We do all those just before anybody goes to lunch, you know, or has a smoke break. This is music to my ears because this is certainly what I train my clients to do. You train and you constantly reinforce it. Before any interaction with a prospect, you have a written pre-call plan. Then you rehearse. And for every hour you're in front of the prospect, you have three hours of rehearsal. Then you execute the plan. And when you come out, you do a written post-call debrief. Then you do a verbal post-call debrief. And you use that post-call debrief to feed the next pre-call plan. 
And it's a tried and tested approach, but very few people in business do that. We are on the same sheet of music, but we normally don't have the time for such an elongated process. We have to do that in sort of a concentrated way in my former life. But one of the things we, we use that you may not in the business world, we use situation boards, whiteboards. So if I'm the one on the phone negotiating, right in front of me is key information, including the two or three points we want to be sure we cover in the next conversation. We may also have some canned responses ready for anticipated questions or statements from the perpetrator. He may say, you know, you cops, you haven't done anything for me. Okay, well, here's here's a list that the negotiator can see of the five things we've done. You shot at us. We didn't shoot at you. You asked us to back off the police car. We did. You know, we took your dog to the neighbors so they could feed it. There's also power in volume. Whatever small thing you've done, when you put it in a list with other items, 10, 12, 20 items, when you recite those, it gives it greater power because what it may not be in quality, it is in quantity. You just said we haven't done anything for you. Let let me go through and remind you of a few things we've done that we hope will demonstrate to you our sincerity. And here they are, number one, two, three, four, five, six. So there's... All of that sort of thing you can rehearse and you can prepare for, and you can even even visually represent some of it so that, for example, if I'm the negotiation team leader and you're in the middle of a conversation, I'm not going to whisper to you or distract you, but my finger might point up to the whiteboard to the point I want you to hit. It's right there in front of you. You see it. Boom. You introduce into the conversation. Beautiful. I couldn't agree more. I mean, A lot of what we do when we're coaching our clients, we do have a bit more breathing space because there's normally gaps between each touch. But that said, a lot of this stuff is very fluid and you need to plan ahead. You need to plan your questions. You need to plan and identify their likely questions. You need to have thought of their objections and how you're going to respond to those. And you need to identify their personality type up front and adapt to their personality type. I mean, one of the rules that I always teach my clients is never expect your client to meet you halfway. You have to go all the way over to them and then bring them back gently to where you need them. In terms of personality profiling, when you're looking at a perpetrator, what sort of processes do you use? How do you define personality types? There's a few key types we deal with. And simplistically, uh, when I've became a negotiator, you know, 39 years ago, we used to call it mad, bad, and sad. Mad, you know, sort of euphemistically referring to the mentally ill person. And bad, the hardened criminal, and sad is the depressed suicidal. Well, I don't really like those categories anymore. First of all, when we talk about mental illness, the truly mentally ill people rarely get involved in these things. And it's certainly tough when you deal with a paranoid schizophrenic and they're hearing voices, getting direction from somewhere else. And that requires a lot of patience and skill to diffuse that. Fortunately, we don't have that many of them. The sad person, the depressed person, we have throughout the world, uh, you know, the mental health community has learned a great deal in dealing with depression and what sort of responses, you know, we give people hooks to live for, you know, you know, where you say you want to kill yourself, but who's going to take care of your grandchild? And don't you think they'll miss you in life? You know, we remind people of things that they put aside because they're in the midst of contemplating killing themselves. And the bad one, the criminal one, I don't even use anymore because it's such a wide variety of people. You know, what is a criminal personality? I don't know that there is such a thing. 
But what we do deal with, I call it the other kind of bad, and that is bad angry. The most dangerous, lethal person we face in law enforcement is the very angry person, angry at the wife because she's going to leave him, angry at the job, the, the employer because he's been fired, angry at the neighbor because they're having a dispute over the property line, angry at the city because they're expanding the sidewalk in front of his house. These are people who typically don't have very good coping mechanism skills. They probably come from a dysfunctional family. They may not have a good employment history. And they tend to explode. They're very full of rage. And in fact, the biggest indicator that gives us concern is impulsivity. Somebody that is impulsive. So if I was dealing with you and I engaged you to be one of these bad, angry people, I would look at your police record. And if I found a whole series of assaults on other individuals indicating you get in a lot of bar fights, you get in traffic altercations, the police have had to respond to your home umpteen times because you and your wife are yelling and screaming. Then, you have, know, you, have you looked up my rap sheet? No, no, I don't mean this question. <laughs> Sorry to use you as an example, Mark. <laughs> But uh, that impulsive character, you know, we always say that the best predictor of future behavior, future behavior is past behavior. Yeah. So if you've got this long documented track record of explosive reaction to events that maybe someone like you or I might not look at as being so critical, then that's really important for us to know. And I always tell negotiators, you know, what that person is going through may not be a crisis to you, but if they think they're in crisis, guess what? They are. And that's what you have to deal with. So even in the business world, if you have somebody very angry over about very sour deal, you've got to avoid rising up in the argument. You're more likely to, to influence them by staying calm and not taking the bait. Yelling and counterpunching are really not very conducive to advancing your ultimate goal. This is where the Bible got it wrong. You know, don't do unto others is you'd have done unto you, it's do unto others as they need to have done unto them. And I, I think it's, it's a really dangerous belief system that encourages people to think that people see the world through their eyes. I've, what's flabbergasted me in the uh, line of my work is I always thought that when I first started that people would buy sales training because they want to improve their sales. There are two sets of twins out there because uh, people came to me because what they wanted to be able to do was pay for IVF treatment. There's a horse running around the field because the owner came to me for sales training so he could afford an 80 grand vet's bill. And what motivates me is definitely not going to be the thing that motivates them. And I think it's so important that we understand that people do things for their reasons, not our reasons. And it's really important that listening, and this is where I really want to take this, listening is a skill that just isn't taught. Same thing with questioning. I think questioning at best is very anodyne and bland in many cases in sales. Uh, it's just to gather information, and that's a housekeeping activity. What we should be using our questions to do is help establish insight, both for them and for us. And listening is uh, something that you're not just listening to the words, you're listening to uh, the intent behind them. You're listening between the lines for what's not being said as much as what is. And I I'm curious that 
what would you recommend if someone really wants to become a superb listener and really develop that skill? What advice would you give? Are there any courses, any books? Who would you recommend they follow? Well, I'm a very big believer in active listening skills. And, you know, that goes back to Tom Rogers and most counseling programs around the world. And it goes along with what you're saying is asking you want to find more information. You know, Stephen Covey said, first seek to understand and then to be understood. You know, you want to say, tell me more about that. I'd like to hear about that. For example, you know, you might say to a person, you know, we've been speaking for a while now, and, and I, I continue to recognize your reluctance to sell your company. And it sounds to me that part of that might be because you put your heart this company up, and you feel very strongly about it. You tell about that journey you've been on. You know, let give the person an opportunity to tell you their story. We used to use this training graph. We called it the donut. It was two concentric circles, one inside the other, and and the middle was labeled story, which is why we're here. What we're talking about. But the surrounding layer is called uh, fear. So it's not just what happens to us in life. It's not just the underlying theme of why we've gathered to negotiate. But how does the person feel about it? That is a big driver to decision making. That go beyond. It's it's like I, I used to advise corporations when they you know, had to do massive layoffs. And how do you do this so you don't encourage potential workplace violence? And you've got to be humane. And, you know, you don't just say, uh, today's your last day, you're fired, goodbye. You know, you've got to provide programs to people, know their value and their worth. And you've got to take the time to listen to what they have to say. You know, I know know this is not what you're expecting. And I I know this is tough for you. And I'd I'd like to hear how you feel about it. That'll help me devise some programs to make this as easy as it can for you. It's hard to get mad at somebody who's trying to help you that way, trying to understand. Most people don't really expect you to do what they want, but they really expect you to understand how they feel. I'm not sure, I, I can't remember if you know him, Mark Goulston. One of the things that uh, he taught me is that everybody wants to be heard, to feel felt, and be understood. And your job in the sale, in business, in life, is to be interested, not interesting. And if you can do that, then you become very attractive to other people in a commercial sense, because certainly in a lot of the stuff that we teach is based and grounded in transactional analysis and TA. And the concept of stroke giving is really fascinating. Because to those of you who are not familiar with, a stroke is a means of recognition. In transaction analysis, transaction is denoted by a two-way flow of communication. So I say something and you feel something. And then you respond and I feel something. And each of those is a transaction. Now, the majority of people are what we would describe as stroke deprived. And if you've ever had children, what you'll understand is that it's better to get a negative stroke than no stroke at all, because we we are all stroke deprived. But if you've ever been to a dinner party where the host or hostess is saying, so Gary, tell me, how are you finding the food? And they're constantly fishing uh, for compliments. It's an indication that they're stroke deprived. And in a commercial sense, it's really important to be a provider of positive strokes, unconditional and conditional, but to recognize that people need that recognition because certainly my view of the world 
is that we're all adults, uh, children trapped in adult bodies. And you wake up at 50 and think, how the hell did I get here? I have a mortgage, I've got three kids, I've got credit card debt, I'm trying to keep my job, I'm worried about hitting my target. And there's that little kid inside. And all of us need that sense of reassurance, that sense that we're valued. And what I'm hearing from you is that that is something that, you're imbuing in your negotiators, but when they're speaking to perpetrators, it's really about making sure that they feel intact, that they don't feel like they're being diminished in the process. They're being respected. Is that pretty much your thinking? Very much so. And and I think particularly when you deal in the law enforcement context, which is my background, a lot of the people you deal with when a crisis occurs feel as though they've had a a negative relationship with law enforcement in the past, and they feel they haven't been responsible, and they feel they haven't been appreciated. My main focus now when the presentation is the key to all business, the key to all law enforcement negotiations is building a relationship. And in law enforcement context, that has to be done probably in a more condensed time period than business negotiations. But it's all about relationship. We want to work with people we like and we respect and who in turn like and respect us. So we don't automatically get that respect or create that relationship because of being an FBI agent or a member of a certain corporation. You have to earn the right. And in your therapy, I'm going to demonstrate through my responses, my questions, my inquiry, my interest in this other person's point of view, and my acknowledgement of their point of view, I am demonstrating that I am worthy of your respect. And that is the key building for a relationship that's going to accrue to you in a positive way. This then brings me to the final topic I'd like to cover. You're talking here about being able to earn respect where your only currency is trust and influence. There may be things, that, you know, concessions and so on that you can give, but you have to earn the trust and you have no direct power. And it's really important to let your adversary in these uh, hostage situations or crisis situations to feel like they have the power. And I think it's also really important to build this concept of service that you're there sincerely to serve in order to find the best possible outcome, an outcome where you know, people walk away alive and unharmed. I'm really curious about, to tie it back to your early career, what, what drove you to choose a career in service? Oh, it's a good question. For me, I was uh, very young. I was, you know, probably eight, 10 years old, and I saw a television show about the FBI, and it just uh, something about it. Was that G-Men? No, no, it was before then. It was way before then. You, it was the old Mickey Mouse show. And it went to the- oh, right. <laughs> and the, the young host went to FBI headquarters and, and interviewed Edgar Hoover. And, you know, something about the, uh, the aura of chasing organized criminals and gangsters and spies and... I just thought that had to be the most fascinating job in the world. And my, my mother was very kind of bought me a, a kid's book about the FBI, and that became my dream. And I and it and I held it, held it to this day. And only when I became an FBI did, did I gravitate to this other specialty within the FBI. I think I just love the challenge of taking on what is often the, the ultimate problem, trying to save a life in a desperate situation. 
And we certainly, we made a big shift in the negotiation business, and I'm, I'm very proud of that, was moving to this uh, listening skills subset about 1991 or two before then we were mostly teaching bargaining oh you want this you you want you want some food inside the bank with the hostages you're gonna have to let one of the hostages it was you know quid pro quo bargaining and it was good it was effective it helped but then we said yeah we're really dealing primarily with people manifesting very strong emotions we have to be able to draw that and understand their frame of reference what's bothering them and again what we mentioned before, you and I, Marcus, and that is a lot of these people never really felt or appreciated. The guy that's in there killed his boss because he's being fired is not going to get his job back by doing that. But, you know, he knows that, but he's now acting on his anger and not his logic, you know. So you have to, you know, you have to appreciate the fact that it sounds like the company didn't appreciate the work that he did, the contributions that he made. He's concerned how he's going to tell his family, what's uh, what's the future like. Those have to be addressed and acknowledged and understood and allow him to work through that. And it's a powerful means of influence. And, and you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, whatever mistakes you make, whatever things you do right or wrong, you create that relationship of trust. You're good. When I was in the consulting business for five years after I left the FBI, I never lost a client. And, and I didn't because even though the services my company was said might be more expensive, at the end of the day, the client said, I'm going to keep with this company because I have a relationship with him. And I know there will be problems along the way, but I'm confident that when I call him up, he will make sure it gets fixed because I trust it. We have a relationship, you know, and that's such an important and valuable thing that that relationship is more valuable than anything. And that's why sometimes when you change relationship manager, the whole deal gets screwed up and falls to the wayside because that same level of relationship is not necessarily automatically transferable. It has to be earned. It's really interesting. I was uh, interviewing Chris Dannon, who was Zig Ziglar's right-hand man for about 30 years. And what he said was really telling. He said that when he prospects for business, he's prospecting for five years down the road. He's prospecting relationships. And I couldn't agree more. You've got to be thinking long-term. If you're very transactional, then it's self-serving. And people pick up on that. You've got your amygdala, you've got your limbic system, and it's very highly attuned when someone's trying to pull a fast one or they're trying to take advantage. We've obviously spent a good hour on this, and I don't want to overstay my welcome. So thank you so much for all these insights. I am curious about what influences you have in terms of what you're reading, watching, listening to, or who your big influences were throughout your career that you'd recommend other people. I try to alternate between reading fiction and nonfiction. At this stage of my life, I get sent a lot of books by people that want me to read it forward or comment. Um, I just got a book that's not even published. Uh, it just came out called uh, you know, uh, You're Not Listening by Kate Murphy. I'm just getting into that. Another one I really like and, and Marcus is called The Power of Not Knowing by Jamie and I love this book. Uh, by Jamie who, sorry? Uh, Holmes, H-O-L-M-E-S. Thank you. What, what he says is basically successful people in life are comfortable in gray. 
And we have a tendency to want to be absolute, to have an answer yes or no, and be decisive. And because once we've made that decision, then we don't have to second guess ourselves. And psychologically, it's more comforting. But he says really successful people are okay saying like, no, I don't know. I'm not sure. But I can live with that. You know, and let's make the best of what we have to deal with. You know, I found myself that way in bosses. When the boss said, okay, you want us to do this. Can you guarantee that? And I'll say, well, no, I can't. Seems like a decent move to me, and I don't see a downside. So, you know, let's weigh the pros and cons, and let's call the decision. See if this, uh, since we're not really in a position to lose anything here, why not go forward with it? That's always one of the fighting philosophy of my work. And uh, I really like this book. They profile a number of people who are in life and business because that's sort of the attitude they've assumed. Excellent. And You're Not Listening is by Kate Murphy. Yes, the other one, You're Not Listening by Kate Murphy. And, and in fairness, I haven't read it all yet, although I've read some of it. It's quite good. And, uh, you know, there's just literally dozens and dozens of books that you might call self-help or business books and, but I think listening, you know, my wife would suggest I don't do it as well at home as I, as I do in my career. And she's no doubt right, because there is a, you know, familiarity breeds contempt, as someone said. But, but I think when you really are sitting about talking with a friend that's having a problem, a co-worker, you want to get a deal done, you know, really focusing on listening to what they have to say. An absolute essential ingredient to the, to the relationship. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for that. Tell me this. If you had a golden ticket and you could advise the idiot Gary age 23 to avoid a lifetime of misery and self-sabotage, what advice would you give him? Yeah, you're going to be disappointed in my answer because I'm not all that unhappy with my 23-year-old self. I, I, I was like, I Maybe 15 then. <laughs> well, I think my primary lesson would have been don't, don't sweat the small stuff, you know, that trying to understand – you know, what's important in life and what's not. And of course, part of being 15 years old and 16 is finding your way in the world and you're making mistakes. And that's almost an essential requirement to become the ultimate adult that you hope to be. But I'm not too hard on myself. I think um, I was blessed uh, with good parents, good friends, and, um, with my community. And I know everyone's not so fortunate as, as I was, but, um, you know, I always tell people that the, the smartest thing I ever did was pick good parents. And, uh, I recommend <laughs> and but no, so I, I wouldn't be too hard on it. I just, I just think knowing, as we tend to do as we get older, knowing what's important and what's not, what's worth getting worked up over and what's just let it slide by. Very fair advice. Okay, so final question. What are you struggling with, wrestling with, either in terms of um, you know, life, the universe, and everything, or the big questions that you still haven't been able to address? I'm really spending a lot of time thinking about the inconsistencies of what people say and what they do. And this comes to mind with the American political situation ongoing now, where people that I know and respect who I think are smart, educated people, you know, may hold very different perceptions about, say, our president, you know, and why they support Trump. I, I see Trump very similar to um, David Koresh that I dealt with, almost a cult leader. Yeah. And it would be easy to understand how, you know, people with maybe 
weak personalities and impressionable people searching for answers to life. I understand how they can be drawn to like David Koresh. And I understand how that is what a guy like Trump has in this country, particularly with racism and so forth. But how educated, accomplished people can can support some of the things that this man says and does. I'm really struggling with that. I don't understand that. I get that. And taking that to the next level as well, what I'm struggling with is how the evangelicals can support him. And this is symptomatic of a lot of human behavior, where we find a way to justify something that's unjustifiable, even when it flies in the face of our moral code. So it's a real struggle in life and in business, because people do things that you get surprised by, because you know, it's just so out of character. It doesn't seem to stack up with logic and reason. And the conclusion I've reached is that Mark Twain was right. When you realize the whole world is mad, everything makes sense. But it's not a very satisfying uh, answer to that question. No, I, I think you're right. I mean, I have family members that are evangelical. I'm not. But, uh, and, and I'm really shocked that knowing what they purport to believe in and the sorts of things that they've always sort of dwelled on in terms of the belief system, and the disconnect, and then they may support a man who seems to me so clearly to be the antithesis of that. I don't mind that somebody supports someone. But what really bothers me now is hypocrisy at such a such a, a large scale. Where you know we see it over here in these old interviews of politicians who say one thing, and now that there's a different guy in office, they say something completely different. I'm sure I feel about certain things differently today than I did I can't really apply massive changes in perception in some of these core areas. And, I, and I'm just disturbed by it. And I'm disturbed for my country and our future and the whole level of discourse that we have in society, our trust in the freedom of the press, and the rule of law and responsibility. I hate to see this blue flag, red flag, partisan. I'm not a member of either political party. I'll make that clear. But I, I find the notion sort of naive that if you were in one party, you think everybody else in the other party is good and bad and terrible. And then everything your party does, even if you may really disagree with it, feel the necessity to embrace it fully. My brain doesn't work that way. And I, I'm struggling with trying to understand people who have, I think, fallen into that. I think that there is something that may at least shed some light on this. Have you come across an author called Matthew Syed, S-Y-E-D? Matthew Syed, he's written a number of books. He runs a company called the Black Swan Group. And he, uh, not Black Swan Group, that's Chris Ross, isn't it? It'll come back to me anyway. He's written a book called Rebel Ideas. And what I think has happened, because we're seeing this trend in the UK, we're seeing it all across Europe, we're seeing you know, the rise of extremist politics and more polarization. And I think to a large extent, we found ourselves in echo chambers and bubbles. And so we're being conditioned to engage with content and material that we already agree with. And it's very easy. And I mean, Trump and the like have a tendency to build up a message which is that if it's from the mainstream media because they hate us they don't trust us you can't believe anything and so on and matthew science got a really interesting take on this which is that having diversity in terms of 
different perspectives where people grew up, where they come from, how they view a particular problem. And he uses the CIA as an example post 9-11, because the CIA obviously, to a large extent, was white and male. And they didn't have any Arab speakers. They had no Farsi speakers. And you know, to deal with the Middle East, it's you know, if you don't understand not only the language, but how the leaders like Osama bin Laden were using poetry in order to describe their map reality of the world, then you can never really understand what's going on. And so you'll never understand your adversary. So the, the two years before, um, a lot of the hijackers had been identified as threats, but they were allowed to come into the US. They were allowed to take these flying lessons, which must have set off some alarm bells, but it was overlooked. And because we get stuck in this bubble and we only listen to and hear opinions that sound like us, then we forget that there is um, another side to the argument. And one of the things I've done, and I, I have to say, I still find it deeply uncomfortable, is following the likes of Trump and Nigel Farage over here so that I can hear what they're saying. So I'm not entirely devoid of understanding it. And I have to bite my tongue sometimes. You know, I've practically bitten through it on a few occasions in order to listen to the other side's point of view. I get where you're coming from, and it, it does worry me because I've got three young daughters, and the world that they're inheriting is one that seems to be deeply, deeply polarized. And there is an awful lot of irrationality in our leadership. So I'm with you. One of the most troubling aspects of it is um, in the social circle that my wife and I have where we live here, we have a lot of friends, and probably half are of one political persuasion and half the other. And when we are all together through some organizations, everybody gets along fine and we're yeah. civil and we're polite and we listen to each other, you know, and we seem to try hard to avoid certain topics or arguments that we know might be explosive. But then you go on social media and people feel as though they have a license to attack each other in the most vicious way. And name call and make assumptions and you know, these are things that weren't present when I was a younger man in our political discourse and I, I don't know that we fully understand how to deal with that yet and it, it bothers me that it's probably going to be something we have to do for a long time. As you say we in the United States you either get your news from Fox which is very conservative or you get it from MSNBC and CNN which you know conservatives would say is very liberal but we tend to only park ourselves in those for those sources of information to, to guide our thinking. And it's just bizarre to me. I, you know, I think a really good example is if you talk to most Americans, they would say, the reason we're fighting in the Middle East is so they don't come over here. That's the byword. And then there's another side of America that said, well, maybe they're coming over here because we're there. You know, uh, so who's right, who's wrong? But you can't really have a discussion because if, you know, it, it digresses very quickly into personal attacks. I always like the one when, and I'm not centering this on Trump, but historically the United States has said, like, North Korea, we will talk to you as soon as you do what we want you to do. <laughs> and I said, well, this is the guarantee that they will never do it because it's like a example I use is a mule, you know, farm farm animal, very stubborn reputation, well-deserved. And you may be able to convince the mule to follow you if you want it to go to a particular place on your farm. But if you get behind it and try to push it, the mule will never move, never. 
And in its little pea brain, it says, if you're trying to push me, then it may not be something I want to do. And, you know, when you stop to think about it, people are no different. And we don't like to be compelled to do something. And we go overboard in resisting in the opposite way. It's, uh, I don't know how we get back to a civil discourse. I know you're going through it in your country as well, but it's certainly worldwide. But I'm not sure the answer. If you figure that one out, Marcus, you'll be a relative man. Maybe, or one foot in the grave, I think. I think that comes down to collaboration. It comes down to having an openness to accept that other people have a different point of view and that you can accept that that opinion is valid, even though you can disagree with it. I think that the whole idea is that it, that we have to be right or wrong. And you either have God on your side or you don't. And it's frightening. Lie awake on many a night pondering this question. So on that happy note. <laughs> well, I just think we'd be better off if our politicians would, would moderate the tone because I think they do set an example. And yeah. Particularly in our case, our, you know, I, I, w- I think someone should take our president's tweet away and it does not, it's not conducive to creating cooperation, which my whole life has been about, uh, you know, is finding yeah. areas for agreement. And so when I see someone purposefully or not, so blatantly in, you know, very obvious efforts meant to divide. It just, it, it's got me flummoxed. Uh, I'm, I'm really uh, mystified by it all. On that note, Gary, thank you so much. My pleasure. This has been absolutely enlightening and I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I hope we can do it again sometime. Gary, how can people get hold of you? I know that you keynote and you're in high demand. So if someone wants you to come and speak, to their sales kickoff or to their C-suite? How can they get hold of you? I mean, you can get me through A Speakers in New York or Washington Speakers Bureau, but the, you know, also just as, just go on my website, you know, www.gary.net, I mean, garynester.com, G-A-R-Y-N-O-E-S-N-E-R. And it's got presentations from me, some articles I've written, a couple of my appearances, and you know, how you even get calling for time. Well, I was an FBI negotiator through that website. You can order through Amazon or engage me to come out with a presentation. Have you got an autobiography coming? No, the the one I've written, my book is is sort of autobiographical and uh, to some extent it's a passage of crisis negotiation and, of course, my own personal journey. So there's a lot of these lessons embedded in the various case incidents that I talk about that were part of my many years uh, as an FBI negotiator. Fabulous. Gary, thank you so much. You're more than welcome. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed and found this conversation helpful, then please comment, like, and share. By all means, get in touch with Gary if you have an event where you'd like him to speak. If you believe that you have an interesting message for the CXO for C-suites or for sales teams, then please get in touch. I'd love to have a chat with you about becoming a guest on the podcast. And if there's someone specific you'd like me to interview for the podcast, I'd be grateful if you could connect us or introduce me. And that's Marcus Cowd. He's signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. Happy selling.